Today, we will discuss a virtual tumor board case. Before we begin, we must include a disclaimer. All information presented during this podcast is made available solely for general information purposes. The ISLC does not warrant the accuracy, completeness, or youthfulness of this information. The information is not intended as medical advice and should not be relied upon a substitution for consultations with qualified health or medical professionals. Any reliance placed on any information is strictly at your own risk. The ISOC disclaims all liability and responsibility arising from any reliance placed in such materials by you or any other person. In addition, the presentation by the ISLC or a third party or any materials or information regarding any specific opinion, product, process, service, or organization on this podcast do not constitute or imply the ISLC endorsement or recommendation of such opinion, product, process, service, or organization. All statements, opinions, and materials expressed or provided by third parties are solely based on their opinion and the responsibility of the person or entity making such statements or providing such materials. Such third-party opinions do not necessarily reflect any opinion of the ISLC. The ISLC shall not be responsible or reliable for the content or accuracy of any statements, opinions, or materials provided by any third parties. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concierge, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert. I'm Dr. Narjus Duma, an assistant professor in thoracic oncologist at the University of Wisconsin. I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm grateful to have Dr. Enriqueta Philippe and Dr. Paul Pack for joining me today. Dr. Philippe is a professor of medicine and section in chief medical oncology in the Department of Thoracic Oncology at the Val de Bron University Hospital in Barcelona. Dr. Pack is an associate attending physician and clinical director of the Thoracic Oncology Service Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Catherine Cancer Center in New York City. Dr. Philippe and Dr. Pack, thank you for making the time to be here today. Hello, everybody. I am very pleased to participate in this virtual tumor war. Thank you. Hi, thanks for the invitation. I think this should be fun and informative. All right. We are very thankful that you're both here. We are going to discuss a case about squamous cell, non-small cell lung cancer. First, we just present the case, and then we were going to have questions associated with the case. And both or, or uh, guests, we give their opinions. All right, so let's start. This is a 61-year-old female with past medical history of diabetes type 2 and hypertension. She presents to her local primary doctor with a two-week of constant back pain and worsening cough. The cough is not productive. The primary doctor does a Texas ray that shows a left upper low mass and a non-traumatic left rib fracture. Following that, a CT scan is obtained that reveals a four centimeter left upper lobe mass with a cavitation, enlarged mediastinal bilateral supraclavicular lymph nodes, and a potential metastatic lesion in T8 through T10. 
a PET scan is done that shows FDG uptake and that primary lung lesion that was seen in the CT scan, the lymph nodes, and the bone lesions. The primary team decides to proceed with a biopsy of the bone lesion that shows a squamous cell carcinoma of the lung with a PDA1 expression less than 30%. In order to complete the staging, a brain MRI is also done that reveals two single brain lesions less than 10 millimeters. The patient is asymptomatic and has no neurologic symptoms. So now that we have the case of a 61-year-old woman with a newly diagnosed squamous cell cancer, we're going to talk a little bit and we're going to discuss. So Enriqueta, now that you know the case, what would be your first or the next step when meeting this patient for the first time in the clinic? Okay, so yeah, as in all lung cancer patients, uh, we would perform a complete medical history, including comorbidities, weight loss. We would also ask for smoking habit in this patient. We will ask about concomitant medications, prior diseases, and also potential prior immunological diseases, and of course, a complete physical examination. So we would uh, evaluate the performance status, we will ask uh, the patient if she has uh, pain or any other symptoms and will request uh, probably a general blood analysis. With all of this information, we would discuss in our team what is the best treatment approach for this potential patient with squamous cell carcinoma and a PDL1 less than 30%. So Enriqueta, one question about your clinic. When a patient comes in, is these patients like this either seeing a multidisciplinary clinic? she's already have metastatic disease or is only directed to the medical oncologist? We discuss in our uh, tumor board, we discuss all patients, even the patients with a stage four disease, but the patient is visited only for the medical oncologist, uh, in some cases with also the uh, radiotherapist. But uh, yeah, we will uh, see the patients, but we will discuss with all the team. Okay. I, I find that to be wonderful. And in this case of squamous cell lung cancer, um, what would your role, how would you see NGS or next gene sequencing in this case? Will you wait for the results before the patient is presented or the decision of the treatment is made? This patient uh, has a squamous cell carcinoma. And in general, we are not doing NGS for those patients with a squamous cell carcinoma. We test these patients only if uh, never smokers or with light smoking have it. In Europe, we don't have any approval, for example, based on TMB, such as pembrolizumab in TMB high in patients uh, in agnostic tumors. So there are no clear rules for testing squamous cell carcinoma patients uh, by NGS. It's uh, nice to do, but it uh, would be done only for academic purposes. And I think it's wonderful that we have you and Paul, because we, we had the perspective of the U.S. practice and the practice in Europe. And in Spain to be a specific. So, Paul, will you ask for NGS in this patient? Will you wait for the results before the treatment decision is made? Yeah, NGS, it's a, it's a great question, particularly coming now, I think on the heels of the approval of catmatinib and then tapotinib for Medixon 14 skipping. Around June of last year, the NCCN had revised its guidelines to incorporate after catmatinib's approval, Medixon 14 skipping. Uh, to be done up front along with everything else that we test. 
But uh, in addition to that, they altered the language. I think it went kind of under the radar. <laughs> but the old language in the NCCN for squamous cell lung cancer molecular testing was um, exactly as Edward Kitchen suggested, you know, do this in never smokers or very light smokers, small biopsy specimens with the idea that um, there might be a mixed histology or a misdiagnosed solid adenocarcinoma or something like that going on with an eye towards things like EGFR and ALK detection. But they actually got rid of that qualifier and have replaced it with a consider molecular testing in squamous cell lung cancer, just sort of like we do for lung adenocarcinoma. And I think that pivot had to do with Medexin 14 skipping, which can uncommonly found, be found in squamous cell lung cancer and was reflected in some of the data uh, for catmatib and tapotomous approval. So technically, the NCCN does recommend upfront molecular testing, uh, but Edward Kitch is right. I mean, right now, it sort of rests on that single indication at the end of the day. It's not like we have a plethora of targeted options for squamous cell lung cancer. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that that word gets out in the community in the US and what the uptake is on NGS. I mean, you know, Memorial is an academic center and me with a specific interest in squamous lung cancer. We've been doing routine molecular testing on these patients for quite some time now, I think since around about 2012, actually. So for us, it's standard of practice, although I agree with Enriqueta, only until recently was it not really standard practice and NCCN would, would agree with that sentiment. All right. So that, that's interesting to see the differences. And will you wait for the results, Paul, before you make a decision about treatment? Oh, no, probably not. Um, just because, again, the the probability of finding one of these alterations in squamous lung cancer is, is very low. And so the odds are you're not going to find it. Um, and so generally, I just proceed on with what the standard first-line therapy is going to be, even in never smokers, uh, although that's a little bit of a gray area as to whether or not one should wait. And part of the tension that's there is the turnaround time, which can be two to four weeks for uh, tissue-based uh, molecular testing and, and a bit shorter, maybe seven to 10 business days for liquid biopsy. But in any event, I think just the chance of finding these is low enough such that for most patients will move forward with standard first-line therapy. That makes sense. So along those lines, Knowing what we have about the patient, let's say the NGS came back um, and there was no target mutations as expected for many of these patients, what would be your first line therapy? And if you can share how is the treatment algorithm for these newly diagnosed squamous metastatic that comes into your clinic? Uh, sure. So like Enriqueta, we don't actually usually have a reflexive multidisciplinary team taking a look at all the stage four cases, but we do make referrals as, as needed. And so in this case, with the patient having two small brain metastases, usually I'll make an initial referral to radiation oncology to see whether or not SRS can be delivered, you know, even irrespective of the first-line therapies. Um, and so that's generally one of the first things that I'll do in a case like this. You know, as to what the algorithm is right now for us, we generally still hew to the PDL one 50% uh, cutoff where those patients who have greater than equal to 50%, I'll recommend pembrolizumab. And those patients who are less than 50%, um, including negative patients, will get uh, carboplatin, the ataxin, and uh, pembrolizumab per keynote 407. There are other regimens, of course, that are approved in the space and other regimens that one can give. But I think the issue here is that uh, the data don't look really any better than keynote 407. And by raw overall survival, often are a little bit worse. So there's been nothing out there with a more recent approval that sort of supplanted my 
uh, use of the Kino 407 regimen. This assuming, of course, that there's no IO contraindication and uh, no contraindication to any of the chemo components also, including performance studies. So Enriqueta, uh, for a patient like this, what would your first line therapy uh, in your institution? Yeah, so uh, it's uh, really similar. So we also test for PDL1 for those patients with PDL1 higher than, higher than 50%. Pembrolizumab is the standard of care for those patients with PDL1 less than 50%. If a schemus histology is carboplatin, paclitaxel, pembrolizumab based on Keynote 407. We don't have the reimbursement of uh, NAP paclitaxel, so we use carboplatin, paclitaxel, pembrolizumab for four cycles and then continuation with pembro maintenance. The EMA recently approved the Checkmate 9 LA, and uh, uh, we uh, can consider this schedule also in the future, but there is no still reimbursement in my country. So in general, for a patient with a PDL1 less than 50%, an ischemic cell carcinoma histology is the keynote for 07 uh, schedule. Thank you for sharing that with us. And that just goes along what the next question is. And this question is to both of you. So now our patients with squamous cell tend to have uh, least of comorbidities that we affect, you know, the treatment decision. So now we have this patient and we're going to add some of the comorbidities, which we include recent CAD. Let's say the patient has angina for the last, I don't know, four months. And all the patient is in COPD, has COPD with hon oxygen, two liters with assertion. Will these comorbidities, the history of angina in the COPD, on home oxygen, will that change your choice of first agent? And we're going to start with Enriqueta. Difficult uh, question. So yeah, probably we should evaluate uh, this patient also with a cardiologist. In general, I have to say that for us, the most important factors in order to decide immunotherapy is the ECOC performance status. So we treat patients with ECOC 0 and 1 and the clear contraindications for immunotherapy. This is the reality. If the patient, uh, even with the comorbidities, has an ECOC performance status 0 or 1, I probably uh, uh, recommend chemotherapy plus immunotherapy. However, if the patient has an eco performance status of two, probably I would recommend chemotherapy alone. Thank you. And Paul, how, how will these comorbidities change your, you know, your first line choice? It's a difficult question, I think, because um, sort of what people look like, what their performance status is with these comorbidities can run a bit of a spectrum. And it's one of those things where you kind of need to see the patient to get a sense of what that looks like. So I agree that these are things that we need to consider in terms of modifying uh, treatment, their tolerability as it relates to you know, changes with, the, with heart disease, also exactly sort of how much strain the COPD is having on them in terms of uh, exertional dyspnea and things like that, um, which make you a little more hesitant to give chemotherapy generally in these settings. Um, that said, in the context of squamous cell lung cancer, a lot of folks are like that, sort of the part and parcel of the disease that makes it a bit different from the presentation of patients with lung adenocarcinoma. So at least within this subset, this histologic subset, we're sort of used to treating kind of through these things. But you know, if we do do the combination chemo-IO, then it's with the understanding that there's a lower threshold for just discontinuing, for example, the chemo comp component um, and just maybe continuing with the pembrolizumab, for example. 
And, you know, all of that makes sense. You know, COVID-19, and we have to mention it in pretty much every podcast, has introduced and accelerated telemedicine. So in my institution, we do the first visit over telemedicine. And, you know, it can be a little bit more challenging, you know, see a real like performance status. My grandpa always say the eyeball test is priceless in medicine. Like when you see a patient in the clinic and see them walking. So a little bit out of the plan, but how are you doing this with telemedicine when you have the first, you met this patient for the first time in video? And it can be a little bit challenging to know the performance status because the patient may tell you what they're doing, but there is no way, you know, to really see it because it's through a screen. So I will start with Paul. How How is this new aspect of telemedicine may change your assessment on that? Yeah, NJ, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that, that really is a, a big struggle um, is you're absolutely right. It's just the video can't capture everything about someone's performance status. Um, and so we've run into issues with this where someone sort of generally looks okay on the uh, kind of grainy uh, doximity, you know, feed that we have. Uh, but when we end up seeing them in person at some point, you know, we're surprised. Sometimes they look better. Sometimes they look considerably worse. And I think ultimately to be safe, ideally, after that first telemedicine visit, we do see them in person so that we can have that assessment. Or alternatively, some of the things folks do would be to have the patient seen. We have a, a number of different regional centers by an advanced practitioner, an NP, for example, at the closest regional site prior to administration of therapy so that at least we have a provider who's able to take a look at the patient, even if we ourselves aren't able to physically. Uh, but there is some additional risk that's there. Um, and I think in terms of the general practice of medicine, this is gonna veer a little bit into the philosophical side, which I tend to do. You know, I don't think this is good medicine and I don't think this is necessarily what doctors nor patients signed up for. I think telemedicine is good for some patients, um, even great, uh, for example, but for other patients, it, it's not the, the best modality, I think. So Enri Enriqueta, how are you doing, you know, with I, I, in how much telemedicine is happening at your institution for newly diagnosed squamous cell? Uh, yes, we, we are not doing telemedicine for those patients in the first appointment. Uh, if the patient has a stage for disease in general. So we are working uh, in even in methodological aspects in our consultation. So yeah, we, we are doing telemedicine in uh, some patients, follow-ups. So this is another situation, but for those patients with uh, recently diagnosed of uh, lung cancer, we are trying to see the patients in person. We have learned how to keep uh, our department COVID-free. We, uh, not only the, the, the day hospital, but but also the, the, the patients admitted in the hospital, and we are trying to see the patients. And, and I think that's important. I think that's very important because there is something about seeing patients that, like, I have seen patients in video, and I see them a few weeks later. It's like, you look so much better or much worse in person. So going back to this case, this is a newly patient, and we would like to learn how is the process, you know, regarding clinical trials for a newly diagnosed squamous cell. So do you have a screening process? How will this patient fit into that to try to find a clinical trial? We're going to start with Paul. So we don't have 
what I'd say, an institution or department-wide formal screening process for all of the trials. Uh, what we do have is a number of emails that go out uh, at least once a week that remind the attendings uh, what all of the trials are that are open with brief summaries and eligibility criteria, including molecular criteria. We have weekly conferences also where we go over the different kinds of protocols, the early stage protocols, the targeted therapy protocols, the immunotherapy protocols. And then uh, some of us have also for this different studies, there's a, an IT mechanism where based on the next gen sequencing report that we do internally, uh, an email can be auto-generated once a patient has a hit in their impact report for what relevant trials might be available. So there's some communication that is auto-generated if the investigator ends up setting that up. So instead of having sort of a formalized screening process, we have a number of different mechanisms that sort of cover it in a patchwork fashion. And then we just sort of ping ideas off each other informally off, you know, pick up the phone or send an email, you know, about uh, questions for trials and things like that. Mm -hmm. So Enriqueta, how that takes place in Barcelona? How do you find a trial? So yeah, at Valdebron, uh, so for uh, those patients who are candidates for clinical trials, not only for, for lung, but also for breast, uh, colon cancer, or ovarian cancer, or, or other, other uh, diseases, we perform NGS in general. We perform a panel that is an in-house panel, an Amplicon-based panel plus nanostream, in order to find any potential alteration and to try to find uh, biological, rational, clinical trial for the patient. We have molecular tumor bars to discuss the, the findings. And yeah, we are working to have a program of clinical trials in our institution in patients with thoracic malignancies. Uh, this is the situation and uh, how we are working. It's true that our patient has a squamous cell carcinoma and probably I would try to include the patient in a clinical trial, but as uh, previously mentioned, probably I would not wait for the NGS results. Thank you for sharing with us. Um, I'm going to summarize the case. So we have a 61-year-old female, metastatic squamous cell cancer, and she has two brain lesions, less than 10 millimeters. She is asymptomatic and neurologically intact. So taking that into account, for the two of you, how will this change your decision? Will you proceed to radiation before systemic therapy? We're going to start with Enriqueta. I think this is an interesting point, and I think there are two strategies that may well be valid in this patient. I think the patient is asymptomatic, so perhaps we can start with chemotherapy plus immunotherapy, but other option is to start with radiosurgery in the two small lesions and then to continue with chemo plus immunotherapy. Probably uh, we would choose one of these two options in the patient, my institution, after discussing with our colleagues. But uh, I, uh, in this situation, I would not recommend uh, whole brain radiotherapy uh, in any case. Paul, what would be your decision here with this patient? Well, I agree with Enriqueta. There, there's no right answer um, and there's no wrong answer here. I think they're small enough where you could follow and to see what chemo IO does. You could refer to RADONC initially and get their input and you know, give radiation up front or between cycles of therapy. It sort of <laughs> helps for me to fudge because our RADONC department has a protocol where they enroll patients onto the study, which can randomize them to get observation for a period of time to see how the systemic therapy works before getting 
um, SRS, for example. And so there's a in-between mechanism that we have internally. But in general, I think Enriqueta is right um, on that front and also about how whole brain radiation therapy is has quickly fallen out of favor in general, you know, for this disease. And I think it's important, you know, to mention the consequences of the whole brain radiation, I think, because we didn't have many treatment options. And I think prior to immunotherapy for a squamous cell, there was no that much, you know, for these patients, we progress and then there were that treatment options. But we have seen within newest data, the most updated data for Kino 001, that, you know, five-year survival is higher than we were ever expected with these with the additional immunotherapy, not addition, but immunotherapy as mono, as monotherapy in that trial. So now let's just move time forward with this case. This patient tolerated the triple therapy with carboplatin protein-bound plaquetaxel, also known as a Braxen, and pembrolizumab for four cycles. Then she proceeded, proceeded with the pembrolizumab maintenance. Unfortunately, after 10 months of therapy, the patient reports worsening back pain. And the restaging scans show disease progression. So to the both of you, what will your first line therapy now and why after the patient progress uh, in the first line, the disease progress after the first line therapy? Paul? So things are more complicated now in terms of what we could potentially do, I think. Part of that has to do with the nature of how Kino 407 delivers therapy where patients get four cycles of the chemo, which then falls off and then they go on to maintenance prembo. Part of it has to do with, I think in the field, an increasing trend towards considering radiation therapy for oligoprogressive cases. So what I'd say first is that if there is oligoprogression in this case, for instance, there is just progression at one of the lesions at T8, for example, then more often than not, I will refer to radiation oncology, see if they can do SRS, and if they can do SRS and then continue what therapy they're on, in this case, maintenance pembrolizumab. If there's more widespread progression, then the first thing I consider is how long has it been since they uh, received that chemo component? If it's been a fairly sort of reasonably long time, and there's no cutoff here, really, it's sort of arbitrary, you make it up, but I think six months is a good cutoff. If it's been greater than six months since they had received the carboplatin and taxane, then I might very well just rechallenge them with that because, you know, of course, part of the issue with giving three different drugs as first-line therapy is you have no idea if the cancer is responding to a component of that or all of it, you know, in, in synergy. And the only way to test that progression is to maybe rechallenge them with the regimen that fall, fell off. I think if it's been, you know, a pretty short amount of time since progression, then I just move on to what standard second line therapy would be. And here it's also super muddy because now we're giving routinely almost for everyone a taxane upfront. And so the standard second line you know, would normally be docetaxel remiserumab, but does that make sense if they just progressed off of a taxane-based regimen? Maybe not. So I might just move on to gemcitabine, for example, with or without venerelbine. So it's there are lots of different choices that are there, uh, depending on what the progression is, that uh, would lead to, to a final recommendation. Enriqueta, what would your next line therapy for this patient after progression of 10 months of therapy? Yeah, I, I, I agree with with Paul. Uh, there are different uh, possibilities. If uh, there is a clear systemic progression, probably in this patient, yeah, we can do rechallenge, but 
probably I would uh, treat the patient with docetaxel, even if the patient was previously treated with paclitaxel. We don't have the reimbursement of uh, docetaxel plus ramucirumab, so probably I would use docetaxel alone. But I think it's important also that for those patients, this small group of patients who progress only locally, uh, we may consider uh, treating uh, this local progression with radiotherapy and continuation of the prior checkpoint inhibitor. And that's a wonderful point that I was going to follow up. And I think that we are more and more incorporating radiation in these patients because we know that the next line of therapy can be challenging, right? These patients have been being treated for 10 months, for example, and it's hard to find out what the performance status will be at the time of progression. So the approach of radiation is something I use often for, for some patients, particularly squamous, because you can have some response with that and, you know, prolong the benefit. So one question related to this, to the two of you, is the continuation of the immune checkpoint inhibitor. So I'm going to go with you, Paul. So if the patient goes to docetaxel, for example, will you continue the pomberlucimab? We understand that they know maybe reimbursement, but I I would like to explore that with you because that's a frequent question for patients that come with a second opinion is, will you continue the PEMRO? So I think if there's a switch in the kind of systemic therapy, so if we switched over to docetaxel uh, with the ramucirumab, for example, then then I would not continue the pembrolizumab. But I think what the progression then generally means is that there's just been wide-scale progression on on pembrolizumab, so it just lost its efficacy. And, And I'm not a big believer that a second different kind of chemo will have some kind of magical synergy with continuation pembrolizumab. So I will just stop it um, if there's a switch to a different systemic therapy. And for you, Enriqueta, if you do doxytaxel, could you continue the pembrolizumab or they just the system would not let that happen? I would stop pembrolizumab if I decide to change to, to doxytaxel. And I think that's important. There has been some retrospective data about continuing the immune checkpoint inhibitor, but I think it would be hard to get a cover by insurance or just by the algorithm, or that the patient will benefit from it, you know, and then you have the adverse events. So to summarize in this case, the next line of therapy with docetaxel versus versus GEM, docetaxel plus RAM, depends on where the patient is and the patient's uh, tolerability and possibility of getting the two agents. And if it is a limited progression, I think we are using more and more radiation therapy uh, to control that local clone or local ther- local disease progression, and then continue the pembrolizumab if possible. So now, Enriqueta, in your practice in Spain, how do you think are some of the unique regional practices to your area? And we are discussing this because we want to see how lung cancer is treated in so many different parts of the world, because ISLC is a global organization. So we would like to hear about your experience. What are the unique characteristics? No, I think in general, there are some approvals that are slightly different uh, by FDA and EMA. So, for example, uh, we don't have access to first-line ipilimumab nivolumab because it's not approved. And we have uh, also no approval for first-line pembrolizumab for those patients with PDL one between 1% to 49%. So we have some differences in that way. For those patients with PDL one more than 50%, we prioritize immunotherapy alone versus chemo plus immunotherapy. 
But in general, I have to say that uh, in Spain, in Europe, I think we have the opportunity to treat the patients in experienced multidisciplinary teams. And also we have access uh, to clinical trials for our patients. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's important to take into account that, you know, the data that's presented at our conference, it is very inciting, but doesn't mean that it will be approved immediately in every country. And that some countries, particularly low to middle income, the drugs may not be available for years. So now I'm going to pass this to Paul. Working at Memorial, you have a large number of patients. What are some of the unique aspects of your practice and, and how you will apply it to this case? I think the probably the number one unique aspect of the practice is that we, as I had mentioned before, have had and continue to have routine molecular testing being done for essentially all lung cancer patients, including squamous and a small cell lung cancer. And so it's kind of been built into our culture for so many years that we view it as routine and as standard of care. And that's, I think, a real benefit from, I think, a research standpoint, uh, just having the, the mass of aggregate data to be able to look through to answer questions. Um, but the other would be, of course, to try to pair these patients to clinical trial. And I would also venture to say that it anecdotally can help individual patients, you know, in terms of considering off-label therapies that might fit if they've run out of all standard of therapy. So I think that is probably one of the unique things for histologies um, that have usually not sort of had the reimbursement pathway in particular for, for next-gen sequencing. I think that's loosening up, which is great, but I think that's one of the, the, uh, the major things. Um, yeah, I think apart from that, you know, everyone likes to think that their institution is special or, you know, awesome in a certain way, but, you know, there's so many great institutions around where we are in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic that, uh, you know, I think the other part is just um, the close collaborative connections that we have with the different other folks in the institution, even in New York City, which is nice <laughs> to be able to ping ideas off of and sort of refer between centers for trials. Um, so I think that network is also a, a nice aspect of, of being in the city. And I think that's, that's unique, right? So I'm not very good doing parallel parking. So that's what I live in the Midwest <laughs> because I don't have to do that. I used to live in New Jersey and I found that my life was different when I had to do parallel parking. Like, <laughs> so uh, when opportunity happened to visit Mayo, I moved because there's no parallel parking. And then I stay in the Midwest since then. So I think that's something unique to the cities, <laughs> right? And and I think in Barcelona, there is not a lot of cars. Well, there are cars, but I never had driven in Barcelona. So, <laughs> but I bet there's a lot of parallel parking there too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we the, the goal of the tumor board is also for our listeners to understand how tumor boards are run at different institutions. So we would like to learn first from you, Enriqueta, how the tumor board works at your institution and how COVID-19 may have changed uh, this practice. Yeah. So I think COVID has impacted, impacted a lot in our practice in general, in our uh, institution. We have the tumor board uh, twice uh, weekly. So uh, we are doing now by virtual uh, technology. And we are trying to discuss all patients at diagnosis and also uh, some patients 
a disease progression in order to have re-biopsies or some information of the patient. So, but in the, you are mentioning COVID and at least in, in, in Spain, we are really concerned about the number of new lung cancer diagnoses during the first wave of the pandemic uh, during March, June, uh, 2020. So I don't know if the situation is similar in United States, but in Spain, the number of cancer patients in the oncology departments decreased approximately about 15% in the uh, in the time between uh, March uh, to June 2020, when compared with 2019. And I think that's true. I have seen more stage migration, like just sitting in the tumor more, we are discussing more brain metastasis. We're discussing more things that I, you know, lung cancer screening is still very challenging in the U.S., but I think there has been a delay in diagnosis and patients are presenting very sick. So, Enriqueta, all patients are presented at your tumor board. Is that correct? Yes, all patients, yeah. Okay. And who do you have in your tumor board? Is like surgeons, pathologists? We're just trying to imagine how's the tumor board over there. We have uh, uh, surgeons, pathologists, biologists, radiotherapists, radiologists. We have nurses also. And uh, yeah, and uh, we have sometimes we have a different even uh, a nutritionist. Uh, but yeah, in general, uh, the medical uh, colleagues that we are treating uh, and diagnosing uh, lung cancer, and also nurses. Nurses are present in our tumor wards. I think that's very important. And Paul, in memorial, how are your tumor boards work before COVID, and how they were changed after COVID nineteen? So the tumor boards haven't changed too much. They're held Friday mornings and they're like Enriquez, they're multidisciplinary with all of the different specialties and, you know, pretty formalized with a lot of the times the fellows presenting the cases um, for everyone to go over. And, um, you know, a lot of this is driven by questions for early stage management, uh, but also for uh, metastatic disease in terms of what role the different local options might have, be it surgical uh, or radiation-based, or even something IR-related, for example, an ablation procedure. And so different attendings will nominate cases for discussion at the tumor board. Our volume is uh, much too high to uh, have the bandwidth to discuss all of the cases. And so it really is uh, cases where we have specific questions that require multidisciplinary effort, uh, input that are presented uh, in these Friday morning multidisciplinary uh, tumor boards. And the flow of this hasn't really changed too much, in part because there were some people, I think, dialing in even before COVID. And, and so the switch to just a complete remote uh, uh, tumor board was not too much of an adjustment. Um, we do, of course, have outside of this context, um, just lots of discussion between the different uh, colleagues, the different attending physicians about what they would do for different cases. So it's informal, uh, but we pick each other's brains a lot of the time uh, across the different services also. And I would last thing I would say is that the different services also oftentimes have their own sort of problem-specific tumor boards that will happen. So for example, there is a neurosurgery radiation oncology tumor board for CNS uh, and spine disease, for example, that's a separate offshoot uh, uh, as a tumor board and things like that. So sort of multiple tumor boards that are there for specific reasons, just again, for, for bandwidth uh, issues. 
In um, something I do have to mention is often the tumor boards happen at a time that are convenient for the surgeons. So <laughs> when my previous institution was Monday, 7 a.m., uh, did that determine why did I move not? But it was in consideration because that Monday, 7 a.m. was rough. Now it's Friday, 12 p.m., which is still challenging because it's Friday when it's my clinic for women with lung cancer. So what time is your tumor board at your respected institutions? Uh, in our institution, it's Monday and Wednesday at 3 p.m. Okay. That, that, that sounds like a good time to have a coffee at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul, what about yours? Oh, it's Friday at 7 a.m. <laughs> Before everyone heads up to the or It's the same problem. I thought I left that behind in, in medical school, you know, for the different subspecialties of residency, but it's still there to accommodate everyone. Um, but I'm glad that you mentioned that because, you know, from a, you know, in the middle of COVID, of course, everyone had to adjust their schedules and um, attendance for a lot of folks for these early morning conferences became... I think nigh impossible just because of, you know, family home related things, you know, the kids having to get the kids ready uh, to figure out their remote learning options and, and all those kinds of things. So, you know, I, I think one of the things I'm, I'm, uh, I guess, thankful for, for COVID is, and this is not to say that I'm thankful for COVID, but it's required, I think, a reexamination of how we do things such that that work-life balance has come to the fore. And we're looking at things, I think, uh, through a new lens with more emphasis on this work-life balance. Um, so I think that's that's a good thing you know, that's come out of this. So. And that's true. I think with COVID-19, we have been more isolated. So now I look forward to the tumor board because I can see the colleagues that I used to see in the multidisciplinary clinic that, you know, is not what it used to be because we used to be all together in one workroom. And we, we probably wouldn't never go back to that. So I think the tumor board has another aspect besides discussing our patients is that you get to see the friends that you used to see often that you don't anymore. Finally, we just, we like to ask uh, each of you to have one pair of wisdom regarding the management of stage four squamous cell, non-small cell lung cancer. So Paul, we will start with your one pair of wisdom for our listeners. One pearl of wisdom yes. uh, for non-small cell lung cancer or squamous in particular. Squamous. For squamous cell lung Stage cancer. Stage four, yeah. Um, I think my pearl of wisdom would be, I think particularly for this patient population, which tends to be older with more, more comorbid conditions, that goals of care discussion, right, I think uh, becomes more important in part because the outcomes for the disease are not as good as for patients with lung adenocarcinoma and in part because these patients are, again, older. So I think a, a heavier emphasis on that, exactly what their expectations are and what you might be able to do to uh, sort of align yourself with their expectations. I think that's, for me, it's always important, but in some respects, even more important for this uh, population to consider. So I think that's um, that's my pearl of wisdom. And ultimately, it's relational, right? I mean, part of the great thing about this job, which is why the virtual, I think, is experience is not as great, is that, that uh, relational aspect to the doctor-patient uh, relationship. And I think um, what I just said sort of speaks to that and really, I think, trying to um, develop that uh, as much as possible. So, 
Thank you for that. And Enriqueta, what would be that one pearl wisdom for people all around the world during the stage four Esquemosel? Yeah, so we have seen with the case, immunotherapy has uh, changed uh, the treatment for patients with cell carcinoma and immunotherapy has improved uh, outcomes of the patients. However, we need research and precision medicine also in cell carcinoma because we are deciding the treatment uh, according to pdl one status and probably eco-performance status and we need to continue the improvement in this disease and also we need uh, treatments uh, at disease progression, no? second line uh, potential treatment strategies. Well, thank you for that. And we are wrapping up this podcast. I would like to thank you for listening. Tune in to find out more tumor boards whenever you listen to our podcast. I would especially like to thank Dr. Pack and Dr. Philippe for making the time to speak with me today. So any final remarks? Yeah, no, just thanks for the invitation. I'm glad that ISLC is is running these. I think they're going to be very helpful. And on my side, it's um, I'm grateful for these just uh, because it you know it provides another opportunity to connect with colleagues that I already know, like Dr. Philippe, but also to meet new colleagues like you, NJ. Um, so I think it's a great thing to do moving forward. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for the moderation, for the case, for the opportunity to discuss all together. So, yeah, I'm really happy to participate and hope to see you all very soon in person. That is certainly, we do miss each other, like seeing each other in person. I'm very thankful for your input. I think Esquema cell remains a challenging disease. Uh, we continue to learn, but we need more treatment options. Like you mentioned, Enriqueta, we need more research. So this is it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We hope that you will tune in the first and third Monday of each month. Don't forget to like the podcast, share if you like it, share it with your friends and colleagues, and please stay safe and be well. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.